0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And as ever, we have got tons to get through in our time together. Shortly, I'm going to reflect on what is unavoidably a significant shift, the change in the opinion polls with Labour for now uh, in the lead. Uh, Now, people could say, oh yeah, well, that doesn't matter. They're often wrong, and by now, Labour should be 30 points in the lead. It matters for reasons I will explain shortly. And then we will uh, get to your sensational questions, uh, which are as wide-ranging and original and insightful as ever. Uh, So, God, yeah, we've got a lot to get through. So before all of that, if it's okay with you, I will just uh, mention that Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special, is looming. It's coming up at the great Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham on the south coast on December the 8th. So come along wherever you are along that coast uh, and we will have some fun. Uh, and Loads, I know, come from Brighton, but from all over the south coast. What a great night we will have down there. And then the next day, uh, the regular. Now, Rock and Roll Politics Christmas Special at King's Place. That's Thursday, December the 9th. Tickets are available on both websites. Uh, They're going fast. So do uh, book those and I'll see you there. And we will have... I mean, these are the ones where we make sense of the entire year, not just the week but have some fun doing so as well. For me now, I've got to try and make sense of the week. Now, opinion polls. Of course, many of them are wrong uh, and have proven to be uh, catastrophically wrong uh, in ways that have distorted perceptions about politics. However, perceptions are the crucial element of politics, the way leaders are seen the way parties are seen. And the prism through which they are viewed are opinion polls. So, as I've argued before in a podcast I did a few weeks ago, that uh, Johnson was the most powerful prime minister of modern times there was no internal challenge there was no challenge from a house of commons where he had a majority of 80 the newspapers were largely doting Uh, and the basis of that omnipotence the fear of any cabinet minister from rishi sunak downwards or upwards to challenge anything that boris johnson said or did was down to that opinion poll lead Originally, his big election victory, what an authority enhancing uh, event that was for him. But subsequently, that opinion poll lead. So, when in front of our eyes there were calamitous consequences, that word in British politics and one that recurs every week in this podcast, calamitous consequences that could be connected directly to his leadership, whether it was the handling of the pandemic or the consequences of his chosen route towards Brexit. Anyone would think it was the Europeans who chose this route. It was him and Frosty who chose to put the border uh, where it is, with all the consequences they must have known about at the time, even though it is deeply revealing, uh, according to Dominic Cummings, that Johnson had no idea what the consequences of leaving the customs union would be or indeed what the customs union was in terms of how it worked on these things by the way I think Cummings uh, was so close to the action uh, he would lose all credibility if he made these things up and I don't think he is Uh, they ring true Uh, And he was, as I say, uh, right there in the room, to use that cliche about politics. Uh, And yet, Johnson has gone not only unchallenged, but viewed with a degree of awe uh, by his party, by his cabinet colleagues, by much of the media, including the BBC, who follow the opinion polls and work on the assumption that uh, he is going to lead the Conservatives to another election victory. Uh, And suddenly the polls change and we know why they change Uh, because of the sleaze issues we discussed last week and some of the doors that have opened to cast light on other related so-called sleaze issues. On one level I find it kind of depressing that it takes something like this for voters to notice consequences you would have thought the handling of the pandemic would have led some of Boris Johnson's admirers to question whether their admiration was well-founded, but the opposite seemed to have happened, that um, the higher the death toll, the more the connection between his libertarianism and the death toll incidentally reinforced this week, Uh, was it last week, time moved so fast, Uh, when he went to a hospital and was seen without a mask in spite of the hospital asking him to wear one um, you would have thought connections would be made on an issue with more profound consequences than what owen patterson did and what johnson tried to do as a result Uh, similarly on brexit the consequences have been more chaotic and disturbing and economically paralyzing in some respects than I had assumed and yet on that he has been unchallenged Uh, the pattern of that has been no scrutiny Uh, it's been him and frosty no cabinet scrutiny no parliamentary Tory party scrutiny no scrutiny from the opposition and the media has been largely supportive or silent so it is slightly depressing that it takes something like this for the polls to budge, but they have, not greatly, but enough for people to say, oh yeah, Labour are in the lead in the polls, and oh yeah, Keir Starmer's personal ratings are ahead of Boris Johnson in some polls. Now this creates a change of mood. The polls could be wrong, although I suspect they're not, um, but it doesn't matter. The polls determine everything in politics in Britain and so suddenly Tory MPs already pissed off with Boris Johnson because of his handling of the whole Patterson affair now wonder whether he is this great vote winner because of the opinion polls and those who have dismissed Labour and the leadership of Starmer wonder because of those polls whether in fact the mood of the electorate is turning to the point where maybe there's a hung parliament next time rather than another Tory majority uh, which turns England into a sort of one-party state. It could be fleeting but that I suspect depends on two things. ...how both of the key figures in this dance respond to this changed context uh, when it comes to opinion polls. Uh, Johnson has to end this sequence of risk-taking, which he has always seemingly got away with... um, ...and listen to concerns and allow concerns to be expressed not just on sleaze, uh, but on other issues too, if anyone dares to do it within number 10 or within that docile, subservient cabinet. Um, It is doubtful whether anyone will dare to do it, but he needs to give them space. And he needs to contemplate consequences more often. I was reflecting um, the other day, if you read his columns as a columnist. Most political columnists spend some of their time writing about, you know, if X, you know, one leader does this, he or she would get to Y, and that would be a desirable sequence to happen. Um, Johnson never wrote columns where he explored routes available to politicians and urging them to take one route rather than another. Um, His columns were a combination of vaudeville humour and polemical provocation, but they weren't analysing space on the political stage or the consequences of one set of actions rather than another. And so, as a Prime Minister, he's been the same as he was as a columnist. He didn't contemplate the consequences of what he did with the Patterson affair, and he didn't contemplate fully the consequences when he embarked on his Brexit route uh, with the enthusiastic backing of uh, Frosty. Frosty gets it. Frosty gets it. Um, And he will have to change. He no longer, for the time being anyways has that authority-boosting opinion poll lead which allowed him to get away with everything. Because everybody thought, thought, well, blimey, we can see he's responsible for some disaster, but the voters love him, so let him carry on getting away with these things. If that's not the case about the voters, there will be trouble ahead if he cannot work in a different way. For Keir Starmer, there is also a challenge and an opportunity. It is obviously 10,000 times better for him to be seen as a potential prime minister, which is what an opinion poll lead for the opposition party gives him. Uh, While he was behind in the polls, he didn't really look anything more than a doomed leader of the opposition. Now, none of us know whether he is doomed or whether Labour is doomed or not. But space has opened up because of that opinion poll lead. And he needs to use it carefully, or else it will go away again quite quickly. Um, And the way he can, I mean, there's first of all a dangerous route, and you can see Labour walking towards it to some extent, which is this, to grab every sleaze story, in inverted commas, and conflate them and say, you know, it's sleaze, 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 Johnson is sleazy, the whole lot of them are sleazy. Let me give you an example. The scandal is the Patterson affair. That's the scandal. Uh, Patterson's uh, decision to, or uh, no doubt, he, felt that he was genuine about it. He felt he was doing fine in lobbying or whatever he got up to as an MP, uh, and that the independent scrutiny of it was wrong. Those who've read the independent scrutiny uh, are of the view that uh, he had no choice but to take the punishment. Um, The scandal was Johnson, who no doubt did not read the independent report on what Owen Paterson had been getting up to, Um, the scandal was him then deciding to change the rules because the rules had impeded another colleague a good old Brexiteer colleague um, and to at the same time exonerate Owen Paterson Uh, and the way the rules were going to be changed was via a new committee with a Tory chair and a Tory majority this is scandalous But it is entirely separate from all the stuff going around about second jobs and, you know, old coxie earning hundreds of thousands and all the rest of it. The reason why that is entirely separate is that what those MPs were doing when they declare them on the uh, Register for Members' Interests were within the current laws. And those current laws are quite strict. You have to declare. So there's total transparency and there is accountability. You are accountable to your local electorate. Voters can get rid of you if, you, if they disapprove of the second jobs and the earnings, which they can easily find out about. So that is a minor issue. And yet you can see Labour going down a route now where they're under pressure to ban all second jobs and all that kind of thing. And that then becomes a story, an anti-politic story. Oh, they're all at it. They're doing second jobs and, you know, they should, we, let's ban second jobs. We can't trust MPs to get on with their main job. The route for Keir Starmer and Labour to seize this moment is different, I think. It is to highlight again and again uh, the outrageous nature of what Boris Johnson was trying to get up to, which cannot be undone by a U-turn. There was an attempt to do something outrageous um, and link it to a wider pattern, Uh, link it to Brexit, where Boris Johnson, in the same way he didn't read the report on Owen Paterson, because if he did, he's smart and intelligent enough to know uh, that Owen Paterson was indeed culpable um he he clearly didn't think through his the withdrawal agreement i wonder whether he read the full deal that was unveiled very speedily on christmas eve on brexit um old frosty had been told you know don't rule out no deal frosty when dominic cummings was in number 10 was liaising more with dominic cummings who was uh more hard line than johnson proved to be that deal was done very quickly And unveiled on Christmas Eve, I wonder whether Johnson was master of the detail. If he was, he didn't tell the truth about the consequences. Either way, it's part of a pattern. And you can extend it to a whole range of things. The hailing of a revolutionary, radical uh, set of measures to address the scandal of uh, care homes, uh, was hailed with the tax rise that Johnson and Sunak announced and then we find the tax rise is to pay for the backlog in the NHS. It's not going on social care. So you're in the surreal world of hailing a historic tax rise to deal with social care that's not being paid for in social care. There is a pattern of chaos, a casual approach to rules that goes beyond so-called sleaze and if that argument is framed with a series of coherent fresh distinctive policies not rooted in the mid-1990s not framed by the mid-1990s etc uh, there is a chance that that poll lead is sustained because it's part of a wider critique than being dependent on sleaze But I say it's a moment because everything is determined by opinion polls. When people say, oh, why didn't Labour get rid of uh, Neil Kinnock or Ed Miliband? Well, the answer is that both were well ahead in the polls quite often when they were leaders of their parties. They were seen as likely prime ministers, albeit in a hung parliament when their elections came up. Um, And so they weren't moved. You know, and then Some people say, oh, what about John Major? How come he survived all that period? Well, he won in 1992, you know. And um, uh, so he was buttressed to some extent by a remarkable election victory. Uh, But much of his trouble that arose subsequently was due to the fact that Labour were often 20 points ahead in the polls. It gave... Tory MP's permission to make his life hell because his life or authority had been undermined by the polls. So polls can be wrong, polls can be trivial, uh, but it's a big moment when a party that has dominated uh, in terms of leading opinion polls falls behind. I'm making no prediction as to how long it will last, uh, but um, I think it is a moment to reflect on. And now, to your questions, which will reflect on some of these themes and many others. Before we start, I must say, uh, for those of you, I hope you all remember, uh, there was a great question last week on um, electoral reform and the complexity of posing a question uh, in a referendum that then grants electoral reform. Electoral reform... Presumably, would be the subject of one of these wretched referendums, and the questioner went through a range of possible questions. Anyway, that question was from Venetia Kane, and I attributed it to somebody else. So apologies for both. And Venetia Kane has made wanted to make clear the fact that she sees the problems in whatever referendum question is asked does not uh, in any way undermine her support for electoral reform. I remain a sceptic. So there we are. Uh, I was doing that uh, podcast from Barnard Castle with many, many questions coming in. And um, I'm sorry if I attributed any of the other questions to the wrong questioner. Uh, anyway, I'm back in my usual place uh, this week. and beginning with uh, Will uh, Gregory. Oh, he says he couldn't resist. Yeah, I, was, I presented a live week in Westminster discussion this week on uh, Radio 4 and he was listening to that. He said, I was a bit surprised at the argument that Labour was failing to capitalise on the situation due to a failure to come up with its own concrete ideas. Is this not actually a perhaps rare case where Labour has put ideas on the table which can now play more powerfully rachel reeve's idea of an office for value for money uh falls in a similar area um with the issue of dodgy contracts um this seems one way in which labor has proactively taken a step um which should help to offset the mps are all in it so this kind of addresses one of the things i've been saying I, i disagree with you will about um coming up with tons of ideas about stopping second jobs or defining which second jobs they can do and all the rest of it. That leads, I think, to um, they're all in it. And it's very hard to define. As somebody said this week, would we have wanted to stop Michael Foot when he was an MP from writing? God, if we had lost Michael Foot's writing, we'd have lost a treasure trove. I recommend all his books. uh, Start with Debts of Honour. Uh, An anthology of his essays that was published in the early 80s. I read them when poor old Michael was leader of the Labour Party. I thought, oh don't be leader of the Labour Party, just keep writing. The leadership's making your life hell and you're a beautiful writer, so it's difficult. Um, But I completely agree with you about the other. The Office for Value for Money was sort of underplayed, I think, at the Labour Party conference where, for whatever reason, Keir Starmer decided to focus more on internal party stuff um, certainly in the early days of the conference and Rachel Reeve's own speech was as a result completely obscured by the resignation of a shadow cabinet member I mean I think that was a misjudgment Um, but I agree I think that is uh, a good idea which creates quite a lot of space in the thorniest of areas for Labour tax and spend and does give space also to focus more on some of these contracts that were doled out outrageously um, without any scrutiny uh, as part of the sort of chaotic response to the pandemic. Uh, Thank you Will. Uh, Adam Korf says uh, thank you for the fantastic podcast. Oh thank you Adam Uh, and oh I finally completed your book The Prime Ministers We Never Had. Uh, And I agree with your argument that chancellors are often cited as future leaders but seldom make it. This has got me thinking of Rishi Sunak who wants the role but must be aware that we've passed peak Rishi. I don't think he is aware of that actually. Oh, will be as time passes. Yeah, as time passes. You're quite right. When the economic pain is felt, he goes from being seen as the automatic successor to one of many candidates. Yeah. So how does an ambitious Sunak respond to this? One answer I can't help but enjoy is for him to act sooner rather than later and take advantage of Johnson's current weakness. Um, He has seriously pissed off his MPs and their support for him is entirely transactional. Uh, So uh, he says, is this wishful thinking or is there something to this it's interesting adam uh, matthew paris in the times on saturday had a similar piece saying johnson is over they all know he's useless so sunak it's over to you get ready i will say this how as chancellor you will not uh seize the crown i suspect by knifing A prime minister. Remember, Michael Heseltine didn't uh, by um, standing against Margaret Thatcher, and he wasn't even in the cabinet then. He was a, a backbench MP and had been for several years. No chancellor has done such a thing, and I suspect Sunak won't. So he is dependent on Johnson going, and I don't think Johnson will go voluntarily. So he'll have to be forced out by others to create a vacancy. Now, that could happen if enough Tory MPs trigger a vote of confidence, which Johnson loses. That is the only route. But it's dangerous for Sunak to stir it or be seen to be uh, encouraging such a route. So I, you know, as I wrote in the book, Adam, uh, you know, you look at the prime ministers we never had. A lot of them were chancellors who many thought would be prime minister. Uh, i talked about this in a summer special podcast but just to go back on them rab butler uh, roy jenkins uh, dennis healy ken clark uh, i think there was one other who all regarded as successful uh, chancellors who never and likely next prime minister and they never seized the crown so take a note of that rishi if you're listening um Anyway, let's uh, move on. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, yeah, Jeff Strange. Uh, uh, just advice, Steve, that a typical rock and roll podcast makes great company with a fish supper, a lashings of iron brew. Okay, right. Well, um, there you go. That's the way to listen to this. Um, uh, Jeff wonders about Dominic Cummings. I've read some of his uh, blogs um, and he does seem to characterize the whole of the drama that is number ten as a mediocre provincial am drama affair. I I think it's more alarming than that. Uh, his uh, evocation, Jeff, I, and as I said earlier in my kind of early spiel, it's a lot of it rings true. That Johnson didn't really understand a lot of what he was doing and then in the latest blog i don't know if you've read it uh that um uh he he also says that not only did johnson not understand the customs union um but that he did say to him he wanted to go off and take a break to write his book on shakespeare and this was as the pandemic was heading big time towards britain i mean i just don't think he's sitting there making this stuff up um but uh, anyway, Jeff says, look forward to games of Twister and Pass the Parcel at the Christmas Bash at King's Place. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether I can promise that, Jeff. We'll have a great time and hope to uh, come and say hello afterwards. be good to uh, catch up. Um, uh, now, our correspondent. Our French correspondent, our correspondent in France, Dominique Ajoel, regular correspondent. I'm currently um, choking on my toast while reading in the Times that Boris Johnson has told President Macron to close its borders with Belgium, whilst at the same time accepting that Priti Patel's plans to turn back migrant boats in the Channel were too difficult. Talk about a lack of self-awareness. I think this whole, uh, we talked about it a bit last week, didn't we, the UK-French relationship at the moment is really bad, and it's dangerous on both sides. Uh, There should be cooperation between two of the biggest European countries uh, right next to each other with many mutual interests. But a mutual interest on both sides, actually, but, uh, you know, with with old Frosty and uh, Johnson especially so on the British side, to play up any battle in inverted commas with France is just kind of dangerous and uh, depressing. Kathy Mears wonders whether uh, our unwritten constitution doesn't work when you've got people who don't follow codes of behaviour in that way. So do we urgently need constitutional reform, she asks. Um, so we have sign of written constitution formulated in a non-partisan way um, uh, given that politicians nowadays governing politicians don't follow any of these rules or um, conventions the, the thing is Cathy, that the rules are quite strict, indeed. It is one of the things that's true that some cabinet ministers are saying is that Labour MPs have complained about some of the independent investigations in their expenses or conduct, and the tone of those investigations. Quite senior Labour MPs have said to me, "This is pre the paterson saga. Um, you know, oh God, they treat us like criminals and all the rest of it." So. There are rules in place that are regulated independently these days, so I don't think the issue necessarily leads to the need for constitutional reform. It needs to be acknowledged that you need regulation and independence. You can't have MPs regulating themselves uniquely, Uh, and so that's the issue when you have a government or a prime minister not willing to accept uh, the rules as currently constituted. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to change those rules. It might mean you have to change the prime minister who doesn't respect rules. Um, thank you. Olly Cranham-Young. Uh, I see I'm Ollie a uh, long-time listener to your podcast but a first-time questioner. Welcome Ollie uh, I'm currently in my final year at the University of Warwick, a contemporary of the infamous Noah Keat. I'd say the famous Noah Keat, Ollie. And every Friday lunchtime, we host our own radio sh- show called The Political Arena. Please do give it a shout out. Let's hear it for The Political Arena. I bet that's a great show with, if both of you are involved. Anyway, Ollie says, I'm currently planning my dissertation. We're doing a bit of history now, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, entitled Winds of Change Britain's Changing Role in the World During the Period 1957 to 1963. Oh, oh yeah. That's good. Warwick is buzzing with you and Noah doing all this stuff. It's great. I was interested as to what your thoughts are on this period. It's interesting that Macmillan appeared to accept the process of decolonisation while simultaneously attempting to retain Britain's status as a world power through establishing close ties with President Eisenhower and Kennedy, the establishment of the EFTA and the purchase, that was the European Free Trade Area, and... uh, British, oh yeah, he says, I think the vetoing of the British application to join the EEC common market, as was, proved immensely damaging to foreign policy. Uh, Yeah, I agree, and it is very interesting looking back. uh, You see, Macmillan took over after Suez, and he had learnt more quickly than Eden Britain's uh, dependency on America when taking international action, which Suez illustrated humiliatingly as far as Britain was concerned. Um, uh, but he knew that wasn't enough. He knew that Britain needed to be part of uh, Europe too. Um, and yet he couldn't get us in. And interestingly, he, he asked Heath, uh, Ted Heath, to be the negotiator. Uh, it was one of the many experiences Heath had which justified the Tories electing him leader. I used to be a bit baffled as to why how the hell did they elect this awkward uh, public figure to be leader well he had vast experience Heath um, and one of them was a failed negotiation to get into Europe which makes um, his own successful negotiation in the early 70s even more impressive Um, and I agree it was a terrible setback uh, for Macmillan and Britain uh, its failure to be accepted then, I think it would have changed the course of the sixties and seventies had it happened and given Macmillan a clearer definition of the post Suez foreign policy. Um thank you, Ollie. Keep listening, good luck with your show. Uh Rick Frame uh says um he's extremely worried about uh, what's been happening over recent times with uh, uh, Boris Johnson and what he describes as the untold damage to our democracy. Um, And the uh, exceptional vigilance is required. Um, He is riding roughshod over everything and at the moment getting away with it, or will he? Has it all changed in the past 10 days? Well, I think I've given an answer already, uh, Rick, to, to that question. Um, I don't think he will or is getting away with this now. Politics is so unpredictable and so freakish at the moment. Um, I think we need to add that for now. Um, And scrutiny comes in many forms when issues about alleged rule breaking goes on. Um, The Tory papers turn on Tory governments when they see that kind of thing going on in a way that they won't say with Brexit or the economy Um, so let's see, so I I don't make predictions anymore, you just just get them all wrong Um, Derek Light writes, uh, very much enjoy listening to the podcast while stomping around the Isle of Arran's beaches and hills, oh yeah lucky you Um, uh, I mean, not just listening to the podcast I mean walking in the Isle of Arran on the Isle of Arran Uh, But more often than not, when out shopping, okay, right, Um, not quite as romantic, Derek, out shopping. I find when wearing a mask, I'm free to mutter under my breath without looking too deranged. However, recently, I was asked if I was all right by a fellow shopper when I was muttering yes, 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 agree with something you were saying whilst looking at bananas. Uh, Oh, yeah, well, um, I think that kind of deranged behaviour is wholly acceptable. In the context of listening to this uh, podcast, so I'm thrilled you were agreeing to it. Uh, anyway, Derek r- relates voting change to what happened in Scotland, where, of course, uh, the voting system for the Scottish Parliament was part of a much wider constitutional package to great, agreed with Labour and the Lib Dems largely in advance of 97 and he wonders whether voting reform is uh, more likely to be accepted if it's part of an overall program of reforms of the whole governance of the UK state as uh, voting, the voting system for the Scottish Parliament was obviously part of a wider change. Um, I don't know. I still think, Derek, the, the, a, there are 10,000 challenges facing uh, a, a government if there is a change of government. Um, and by the way, the It will only be with a change government this item is even on the agenda um uh, that you know wholesale constitutional reform electoral reform whether huge amounts of political energy are needed for that with all the other challenges i still doubt but i remember very well i was almost there when tony blair agreed on that voting system for the edinburgh parliament And he did it largely to please Paddy Ashdown, because I think he had already decided he was not going to grant electoral reform for elections to the House of Commons. So he did it for Scotland, with consequences. Um, Tony Blair was not always the world expert on consequences either. Uh, Thank you for that question. Enjoy Aaron and the shops and buying bananas whilst nodding in complete agreement you'll have to you won't be agreeing with me about that now so you'll have to say oh what's he going on about whilst buying a banana thank you very much uh, connor in wales says sometimes i think i'll learn more from your podcast than i do in my politics lectures oh well i'm thrilled thank you connor uh, my question is where the hell is the shadow home secretary nick tom and simmons he seems incapable of uh, drawing in a headline or even doing interviews um uh, maybe he should be replaced by David Lammy or Jess Phillips. He's he's curious. Uh, he's a very bright guy with a great political awareness. He's written biographies. I think he's currently writing one on Harold Wilson, which I think... Uh, I mean, Keir Starmer should take a greater look at Wilson's leadership than Tony Blair's leadership for the position he finds himself in. Um, but he does doesn't make much it's one of the most senior jobs in the shadow cabinet and other shadow home secretaries certainly made more impact people like Yvette Cooper when she held that post and both David Lammy and Jess Phillips would have a higher profile but he's very close to Keir Starmer so I wonder whether that change will happen there will be a reshuffle at some point quite soon I assume so we'll soon find out thank you Connor uh good luck with the politics lectures uh uh, dr James Sinclair says I'm a regular listener to the podcast and usually tune in while walking around the south Norwood Country Park in South London or out on the bike yeah good good combination uh I thought I would propose an entry to your lexicon of misleading inaccurate political slogans yeah this uh this arises from last week when there was a great email from somebody saying uh you know a sort of utterly misleading inaccurate political slogan was accusing someone of playing at politics when obviously that's one of the responsibilities of any politician. Um, Anyway this one's a good one of another misleading inaccurate political slogan taxpayers money. At first sight this may seem fairly innocuous alongside hard-working families and the like um yeah we had another great email last week uh, exploring themes like that and wage increases and so on however it's actually part of the 45 year old household fallacy um uh, and it entrenches small state conservatism Mo- taxpayers money suggests that money is initially created by the public and then placed on trust with the uh, managers in government who decide how to spend that money but money is actually created by the central bank in the form of notes and coins and in the form of indirect interventions such as that famous quantitative easing etc etc the taxation element is actually the second part of the story yeah and you're right taxpayers money it sort of just suggests it all comes from that form uh it was the great margaret thatcher thing you know when she used to say my father in his grocer's shop in Grantham, never, ever spent more than he earned, and a country cannot spend more than it earns, um, and that's the same thing as taxpayers' money. Because of course a country is far removed from a grocer's shop in Grantham; it can print money. As it has done on many occasions uh such as with quantitative easing in response to the 2008 crash and continuing to this very day so it's a great one by the way another one uh, along the same lines is tax burden um implying tax is always a punishment not a route to a better quality of life okay thank you very much for that enjoy the walking and cycling anthony wilson from exeter I've been listening uh, since the word go to your podcast. Oh, wow, thank you. That's great. There's been more than 100 now, Anthony. More than 100. Having given up on the Today programme and other TV news outlets. He said, oh, you're like a lifeline. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, When discussing the manner in which Boris Johnson and his government have so far managed to escape real accountability and scrutiny, both you and other commentators frequently repeat the almost throwaway line that the Labour leadership still hasn't got its act together in this regard. I don't disagree with your analysis, but do wonder when you think we might expect to see the opposition worthy of its name. Uh, well, it was very difficult, I think, during the pandemic. So we will see now. Um, as I said earlier, the polls give space to a leader of the opposition and the front bench, Let's see if they use it. Um, and that, this, is, this is both a moment which will give them a buzz, but a big test too. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, Andrew Stewart uh, in Sheffield. Quick point on the issue of MPs' jobs because I'm puzzled. Why? This is a really good. This is the point I was making. I'm going to read it because I just think it's it it, it is absolutely central to this. Uh, what Andrew says? Why on earth have Labour decided to make such a big thing of uh, this issue? This one of MPs' jobs. Their objective surely should be to damage the reputation of the Tories and the Cox thing is maybe helpful though not sure to what extent in the long term. But by focusing on the issue generally they're inviting voters to make a negative judgment on all MPs across the parties and while they might argue that the Tories are the worst I'm not convinced the electorate will necessarily make a fine distinction. It seems clumsy and inept to me anyway looking forward to hearing your views on this and also are oh, you coming to king's place on december the 9th andrew great well given that you're based in sheffield that's fantastic see you there it'll be we'll, we'll be making sense of the year that night andrew so andrew is in sheffield coming down let's see lots of you there at uh, king's place on december the ninth uh rob watson uh, greetings from leicester i was listening to the latest episode while at the gym which is less energetic or virtuous than it sounds well you know just getting to the gym is an act of willpower i think uh, rob you should feel pleased um i was impressed with keir starmer's use of the c word last week no not consequences that's that's the podcast word but corruption uh Keir Starmer is perhaps the only person who could have used that word uh, for it to have any meaningful impact given his former role as Director of Public Prosecution. Yeah, I agree and it's interesting. I think early in the leadership Keir Starmer wouldn't have used it. He was really cautious early on about his use of language as if the House of Commons was like a court of law um, or even being interviewed was the equivalent of... uh, giving guidance to a jury or something he was very restrained in his language but that meant there was no cut through and he's learning to uh ramp it up a bit and you just have to do that in british politics it is highly charged sometimes far too highly charged and uh sometimes his kind of measured restraint was a rather welcome contrast to the normal frenzy Uh, But it clearly wasn't working. It wasn't cutting through. Um, And so he said it, and he said it with that authority. And there is a useful juxtaposition here between uh, a former director of public prosecutions and a prime minister who doesn't play by the rules. Uh, I mean, even his greatest admirer would say that, almost admiring him for not doing so. But it's a useful juxtaposition. But as uh, I have been arguing, you have to widen the argument quite speedily uh to sustain this uh current position um okay god we gave some time so i'm going to do a couple more and then maybe summarize a few more we've had hundreds of questions Uh, this week. Uh, Ed Francis, I'm the listener who's a proud fellow graduate of York University. When I sent my email to you earlier this year, you speculated on the show as to whether I was there at the same time as you. I'm sad to report that I'm just a fraction younger, having graduated in 2012. Yeah, just a fraction uh, younger, Ed. Uh, Yeah, I was kind of graduated around 2011 or something around there you know however you may be pleased to know that i'm a very energetic ambassador for the podcast amongst my millennial peers yeah with my most recent inductee being my wife who had a great time with me at your last live show at king's place oh great hope you're both coming back on december the 9th um now you've converted her and hopefully all the millennials joining you uh ed I'm just writing in this week, so I'd be very interested to know which alternative, vague term I know, news outlets you follow. Uh, If any, I've been very impressed with Tortoise Media's output over the last year. Um, They certainly fulfil that favoured criteria of yours of allowing stories to breathe and providing context. I also wonder whether you ever tune into outlets like Navarra Media from an alternative uh, point of view. Uh, Yeah... um, Yeah, I I do sometimes uh, read some of the output from Tortoise and I completely approve of the theory behind it, um, which is allowing things to breathe. Um, I think James Harding, who founded it, who was editor of The Times and then editor of News and Current Affairs at the BBC, has a very narrow view of the political spectrum. He's very much a kind of uh, Cameron... Uh, Clegg Blair being as if that covers the entire spectrum but I think it's a brilliant idea and I know some of the people there Matthew Dancona Kerry Thomas used to edit the Today programme they, they they are really substantial people I should probably listen to it a bit uh, more or read more uh, and yeah I to be honest um, Ed although I do get frustrated with the so-called orthodox outlets i still tend to follow them but also tons of podcasts i've just become a fan of podcasts and subscribe to loads i hope you're all going to subscribe to this one by the way um then you get it automatically like we used to get newspapers on the doorstep um and yeah i'm more of a podcast fan than sort of exploring uh new uh Well, actually, it's wrong to call them print forms, isn't it? I mean, they're everywhere. But um, I should look more. Uh, Thank you for encouraging me. Um, Helen Fernandez says, absolutely love the podcast. Oh, thank you. Big shout out to my dear friend Maggie, who got me into them. Thank you, Maggie, for introducing Helen to the podcast. You were discussing the subject of playing politics in the last episode. The fact that Johnson appears to be playing prime minister and treats politics as a game is doing little in the public's eyes to help dispel that view. Do you think that Boris Johnson is now getting bored of playing the game and will be setting his sights elsewhere, possibly stepping down before the next election? I doubt it. Uh, Prime Ministers don't, Helen. Uh, They um, cling to it for as long as possible in nearly all cases. Um, there might be an attempt to bring him down by Tory MPs as already discussed this week in the podcast Um, but even though he did I'm sure say to Dominic Cummings I want to write I just love writing Dom I want to write my biography of Shakespeare and go off and do it while the pandemic rages in Britain Um, while he has a chance of winning the next election and he unquestionably still does at the moment I I Prime Minister's just don't go of their own accord um, they either are forced out or lose a general election so I doubt if he will you see he's young enough that even what he'd like to do I suspect is win the next election possibly go after that and say to Cameron look I beat you hands down in this one-party state I won two big majorities um, and and then go off to earn a fortune he knows he'll be able to earn a fortune the moment he steps away so he can wait a bit I suspect thank you very much Michael Forte very much enjoying the podcast usually as I walk along the sunny seafront here in Marseille yeah I've hardly seen the sun this year Michael I'm 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 gonna have to head to Marseille and that seafront I was thinking about what ifs after your most recent podcast and whether you um, wondered what you thought Might have happened if Blair hadn't resigned in 2007, but had gone on to fight the next election. My guess is that he would have done better than Brown did in the election, that even if he didn't win a majority, he would have been better placed than Brown was to negotiate a coalition with the Lib Dems, Uh, that he would have uh, given electoral reform without having a referendum on it and that we would now be in the second decade of a Lib Lab coalition with no austerity, with David Miliband as PM and with no Brexit. Well, you've, you've leaped, it must be about the sun in Marseille, Michael, you, you've leapt about 100 barriers uh, in uh, that sequence, uh, some of which I don't think is necessarily true. The, the thing about what ifs, and my book on prime ministers we never had, are not what ifs, it's like a, it's a detective investigation as to why they failed to make it. It looks at the evidence we already have rather than imagining what might have been the case. But I I don't know. People forget, because Tony Blair won so astoundingly three elections with big majorities, which Labour leaders don't really do very often, um, that by the time he left, he was quite unpopular. And uh, he was uh, alienating quite a lot of the electorate with various reforms and Cameron was um doing something quite clever in a shallow way which was to echo blair while claiming the future so i wonder whether he would have been as electorally potent at the 2010 election if he had stayed on um i don't think he would have given electoral reform without a referendum i don't think his party would have let him so yeah uh anyway um enjoy the sun, Michael, and, and, and just enjoy the what-ifs, because over a glass of wine in Marseille, it's kind of very comforting to contemplate alternative scenarios compared with the, the, the darkness hovering over some of us at the moment politically. Anyway, thank you very much. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to do these quite quickly. Sorry about that, but we've just had so many, and you're all, you've all baked your bread and done your 10Ks. By now, I would have guessed. Uh, Eamon McGuinness, enjoy the show. I do like the way you say, if that's all right with you, when suggesting how you might structure each one. Yeah, others have said that. I I just assume we're all in the same room, and I seek your permission at all times. Um, Okay, uh, Progressive Alliance. He points out meaningless phrase "progressive." I'm sure many who see themselves coming from the right think they're progressive. Yeah, they do. Uh, every, everyone says it now. Uh, Rishi Sunak, David Cameron, Oliver Letwin all use uh, George Osborne all use the term "progressive." It's 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 another misleading term. Um, how many? Uh, this is interesting. You see, this is a great thing about the questions because it gets us to places which we wouldn't otherwise reflect on. I think so. This is. Uh, Eamon's point. I wonder how many people who advocate this approach have ever campaigned for a local party branch, working a ward or constituency for years, leaflet delivering and crushing door-knocking sessions, chased by dogs, etc. Imagine doing that for years and then being told your candidate has to stand aside for another party's candidate. The reason I uh, say that takes us to places we don't usually go is that sums up one of the problems when we can sit at home, you know, listening to the podcast or doing the podcast saying oh yeah the fractured left uh, or fractured opposition is why the Tories always win they've got to form a pre-election alliance the problem is is that on the ground issue above all others it was the problem for the SDP liberal alliance which was a formidable alliance in the early 80s uh, Bill Rogers for the SDP uh, and his equivalent for the Lib Dems the liberals as they were then I can't remember who it was for the liberals literally worked through the night doling out the constituencies and uh, trying to appease their local parties, that one candidate from each of the parties would stand in each seat. And it took months to sort out. So imagine a sort of pre-election pact with Labour, Lib Dems, uh, Greens, uh, yeah, and you conjure up one of the reasons why it's so problematic. okay um oh yeah uh jay jackson has a great uh one of these other phrases you know like the uh you're playing a politics phrase and another one is the politics of division yeah you're sowing the politics of division and he points out that uh politics which isn't divided uh surely fails to be politics at all absolutely you know i'm always suspicious when uh BBC correspondents say it was the House of Commons at its best, wholly united over some issue or other. Um, Well, the essence of democracy is a political battle because the alternative battle is a military one. And that's why politics is such a great vocation, uh, because you prevail through argument and advocacy, not through force. Um, But there should be a constant... uh, debate so absolutely I completely that's another great one the politics of division is somehow uh, terrible thank you uh very much uh for that Jay um oh yeah and finally this and then I promise you promise you we'll uh leave it for this week uh uh David uh writes in sorry David I haven't got your surname in front of me but email me again and I'll I'll read it out. Uh, you were searching around for former PMs to compare to Johnson. Surely the standout one is Disraeli. Shameless opportunist, populist, whiff of sleaze, always hung about him. Writer by background, and in many respects a political loner who totally dominated his party in his pomp. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is quite interesting, actually. Uh, as you know, Johnson likes to compare himself with Churchill and Johnson's biography of Churchill is like reading an autobiography. Um, But Disraeli comes closer uh, for for, for those reasons, although Disraeli, you know, is a fascinating figure. Um, Funny enough, I mentioned Michael Foote earlier, uh, and I suspect Michael Foote would not be an admirer of uh, Boris Johnson, but he was a great admirer of Disraeli's. Uh, When Uh, Disraeli's uh, Robert Blake, a Tory figure, Tory historian, wrote a biography of Disraeli. It was a brilliantly written biography. But Michael Foote thought it was far too critical of Disraeli and wrote in, uh, it's in that book, Debt of Honour, Debts of Honour, there's a chapter on Disraeli. He hails Disraeli as a great reformer, uh, a radical, and he called his dog Dizzy after Disraeli. And so Disraeli was a complicated figure. Johnson is as well, of course. And, you know, let's see whether Johnson does his levelling up and one-nation Toryism. And I mean that genuinely as a question hanging in the air. Uh, you know, he, he, he seeks definition with that project in the same way that uh, Disraeli was a social reformer. But when you read... Foote's essay on Disraeli you see that Disraeli delivered in quite substantial ways and there is no sign of that happening uh, with Boris Johnson so far. Um, But a fascinating uh, comparison. Well have we not been infinite in our variety in our time together uh, this week from Disraeli I think it was me who brought Michael Foote into it, um, to inevitably the consequences of sleaze, to France, to, yeah, all kinds of uh, meaningless political phrases which have a potency that's quite dangerous, actually, some of them. We've looked at taxpayers' money and all these kind of uh, playing politics so you can't actually be political without it looking bad. It's quite anti-democratic when you think about it. Oh, I'm carrying on as if we've all got time on our hands which i know you haven't so look thank you very much do subscribe do leave a review if you've got time because that gets more people to have access to the podcast and yeah please book for king's place on december the 9th or the rope tackle down in shoreham on december the 8th there are also streaming tickets for king's place on december the 9th uh all of to be booked on the various websites, King's Place or the Rope Tackle Centre in Shoreham. And thank you so much for your brilliant questions. Keep them coming. We're getting lots of new listeners. I can tell from the number of emails coming in. I'm sorry if yours weren't read this week. I try and vary the people as much as possible, but I read them all and uh, do keep them coming. Uh, Steve rick 14 at icloud.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co.co think you cop 28 or whatever it's called cop glasgow no i'll do it all again it's been a long podcast steve rick 14 at icloud.com steve rick 14 at icloud.com thank you so much for tuning in uh, have a great week whatever you're doing from Marseille in the sunshine to walking on a scottish island uh, have a great time And let's all get together to make sense of it all next week. Thank you.